0: 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. The whole theme of Second Samuel is uh, heart after God, and we are certainly not in a, a part of David's life where his heart is after the Lord. David's cover-up for his affair with Bathsheba, uh, you know, through murdering Uriah and marrying her so that it seems like the, the child is legit, um, it seems to have worked for David and Bathsheba. The the child is legitimized by their marriage, and all seems like it's smooth sailing ahead. (laughs) With one exception, the last verse in chapter 11 tells us that what David had done, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And what David will soon find out is that it doesn't matter how successful a cover-up for sin seems to be. A person can't progress in their relationship with the Lord when they're in that place. And so, because the Lord loves David and wants him to grow and continue to get close to him, the Lord exposes David's sin. So, chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew together with him and with his children. He did eat of his own meat, drank of his own cup, lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd, to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he dressed it for the man that was come to him." David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man that has done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Well, we see this whole confrontation starts when God sends Nathan to confront David Nathan, the last time we saw David's advisor, this prophet Nathan, he was giving David God's beautiful promise that the Messiah uh, would be born through his descendants, through his bloodline. You know, it's interesting because this meeting between Nathan and David here will end up bringing God's discipline on David, and it will affect the child born from this wicked deed. Uh, And so, it is an interesting correlation in how, you know, Nathan uh, deals with David. Um, It does, however, bring up the question of why did God wait so long to deal with a lying, murdering adulterer? Why not, you know, deal with it right away? Why not bring it out into the open right away? You know, again, when we last saw Nathan the prophet with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 14 and 15, God promised David he wouldn't reject David's descendants when they sinned or if they sinned. He said, if he sins, I'll, I'll chasten him with stripes, but I won't take my hand from him. I won't take my, my favor from him like I did from Saul. And so if this promise was true for David's offspring, then it, it must apply to David too. And, you know, the beautiful truth, of course, is that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what does God do? He gives us space to repent. And in that space to repent the hope is this. You know, if we look at 1 Corinthians 11, like one of the reasons that we celebrate the Lord's Supper so regularly, we do it once a month, and the reason we do that is because it is a time for examination, examination of self. In 1 Corinthians 11:31, in the text where Paul's teaching the Corinthians about how to celebrate the Lord's Supper, he says, "Let a man let, let a man examine himself during his time." But in verse 31, he explains, "for if we would judge ourselves we should not be judged. But when we are judged, if it gets to that point, is what he's saying, we are chastened of the Lord so that we should not be condemned with the world. So this is how God deals with us as his kids, right? He tells David, if your son sins, I'll deal with him like a son of mine. I'll treat him like my son. I'll discipline him, you know? And so This is how God deals with us. He gives us space to repent. He gives us opportunity to judge ourselves, right? To examine ourselves, to see what's going on in our hearts and go, that is off. I need to repent. I need to turn around. But if we don't do that, then the Lord does judge us. He disciplines us, right? So that we don't get condemned with the world. So that we stay on track. And so during this whole year while David's thinking, all right, we, we survived. We got through this. Everything's going to be fine. God's been giving him this opportunity to repent and of course he doesn't. And so God sends Nathan. You know, we looked at David's struggles during this year of covering his sin. When, last week when we looked at Psalm 32 and Psalm 38. When we read Psalm 51 verses 8 through 12, this David's the song he writes or it's a prayer after Nathan confronts him and after he repents. But in Psalm 51, verses 8 through 12, David lists everything that he'd lost during this year. In Psalm 51, 8, this is part of David's plea to God after he repents. Psalm 51, 8, he says, make me to hear joy and gladness. That's because joy and gladness had been gone. He says that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Anybody here ever broken a bone? Yeah, that's not fun, you know? You know, the idea is God is not just, he doesn't have one broken bone, God's been breaking a bunch of bones. You know, David hadn't been judging himself and God's been breaking bones, trying to get his attention, trying to deal with him, trying to bring him to this place of repentance. And so he says, Lord, I I don't have any joy. I don't have any gladness. This has been one of the worst years of my life. Even though it seems like he got away with everything. So he prays, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Why? Because they've been been right before David the whole time. Create in me a clean heart, O God. His heart hadn't been clean. Renew a right spirit in me because his heart hadn't been in the right place. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. The Lord had felt very far from David. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with thy generous spirit. David had been missing out on the goodness of God. He'd been missing out on the joy of his salvation. David's explaining everything that was lost during this time that he had hardened his heart to God's conviction. And yet, because David still did not judge himself, God eventually sends Nathan to expose the sin. Now, Nathan, as we read already, he doesn't just come out and go, David, you had an affair and you covered it up with murder and blah, 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 blah. Nathan, the prophet, poses a situation to the king as if he needs the king's judgment. And so it says that he comes to David and he says, hey, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew together with him and with his children. It was part of the family. It did eat out of his own, uh, of his own food, drank of his own cup. It lay in his bosom, in his lap. So this is a, you know, we talk about the, the dogs that think they're lap dogs. This is a lap sheep, you know. This is a little sheep that, that you know, and, and, you know, hey, we, we keep dogs, cats, and other kind of animals as pets today. Sheep were actually common pets back then. And so just as you may know people or maybe even be someone who considers a pet as a family member, that was the case for this poor family. This sheep was not a sheep that they had bought to eat or to use to make money. This kind of lamb had no intention to ever be used for a meal. It was the only special thing, in fact, that this man had purchased, and it was dear to him. Verse 4, and there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd. He kept himself back. He could have taken from his own flock, but he kept himself back from taking one of his own flock, one, of his own, one from his own herd, to dress, to make a meal for this wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the lamb of the poor man. Right? Right? Like? Right? I can't read that without hearing that Paul Grape sing it, you know, as he's confronting King George and the duckies, you know. (laughs) He took the lamb of the poor man. He took the poor man's lamb, and he made a meal from it for the man that was come unto him. It's interesting, rabbis for 2,000 years, they still do it today, they use the words that are used here for the traveler uh, to describe David's lust. For example, lust starts as something passing by, then it becomes a guest, and then it becomes a permanent resident. I don't know if that's what Nathan is hinting at, but that truth is echoed in James chapter 1 when it says lust, when it has, you know, conceived, you know, every man, no, God tempts no man, but every man is drawn away by his own lust, right? And when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. Things start to die, you know? And so the way to keep lust from becoming a permanent resident in your life is to run the other direction when it's passing by. It's the only way. If you're going to entertain, you know, or cook a meal for it, then good luck getting rid of it. Now, this story that Nathan is relaying to David, who David doesn't know it's a story at this point in time, it's horribly sad. You know, it's a horribly wrong situation. You know, why would you do something? Why would anyone do something like that? You got plenty. Why would you take this one man's animal? It's not even a farm animal. It's a pet. It evokes so many angry thoughts regarding the selfishness and the arrogance of, a, of this rich man. It evokes much sympathy for the poor man and his loss. And so it's not surprising to see David's similar reaction, verse 5. This is, and David's anger was greatly kindled against this guy, this rich man, you know? The word here, anger, is a picture word, and it evokes the image of the nostrils flaring and someone's face starting to turn red, you know? And, and the idea is anger, that nostril flaring, his face turning red, being greatly kindled, it means it began to burn to the highest degree. David would have been spitting fire if he could. David had literally never been this angry in his entire life. And his, entire, his, his next words prove it. For it says that he says to Nathan, this is his judgment, as the Lord lives, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. As the Lord lives is the, it's the, probably the most solemn oath that an Israeli can make when they say something. It, it's the surest thing that God is alive. It's the surest thing to every Israeli citizen, the fact that God is real. And that's why it was the strongest oath they could make. Because to go back on that oath would be like saying God is dead. And so he says, as the Lord lives, I'm serious, Nathan. The man that has done this thing shall surely die. Um, Not the best translation. It means he truly is a son of death. Um, I bring this up because stealing or killing your neighbor's animal wasn't a capital crime in Israel. And whatever the motive might have been. So it does bring up the question here of, why is David giving this label to this guy? Well, this phrase, calling someone a son of death, it was used to say that a person's deeds were so incredibly evil, it was as if their parentage was death itself, you know? What you've done is so horrible that that it's like your, your mom and dad are death, you know? The death itself, I mean, all death does is bring pain and sorrow. And it's like, you're their kid. You're just like them. And therefore, when you called someone a son of death in that culture, the idea was there's no way you can reform somebody like that. And so they must be put to death, which is why they translated, he shall surely die. Now, since this isn't a capital crime, why is David being so harsh? Well, I have seen a tendency that when there is secret sin in my heart or in others' hearts, um, that when we're we're far from God, either when there's secret sin in my heart or when I'm far from the Lord, there is a tendency, I've found, to levy harsh verdicts when we see wrong in others. We do this, I think, because by justifying our own sin, we become legalistic in our approach to sin. Like we start, you know, when we deal with our own sin, we start like rationalizing it out, right? Well, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this, you know? And, and when we start dealing with our sin in that type of a, 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 a judicial way, we start relating to God in a legal way. And when we start relating to, relating to God in a legal way, well, we start, <laughs> we start falling backwards, backsliding in our walk with the Lord. And so David surely, in in his own conviction that God had been bringing, the broken bones he'd been experiencing, he was surely saying things like this. I'm the king. I get to send soldiers wherever I want to send them. I could have killed Uriah any moment I wanted to. I could have sent him on any mission. It doesn't matter that he's my friend. He's my servant just as much as any other man. And the mental gymnastics that are required to push away that guilt from ourselves, it hardens our heart. And so when we see real wrongdoing in others, we are quick to pounce. (laughs) They don't have the justification I do. How dare they do that? And so I get concerned. I get concerned when I see a, a Christian who is ready to label someone else a son of death for the wrongs they've done. I see it, well, our whole culture is ready to label everybody a son of death at some point if you don't agree with me, you know, you know? You don't see it my way. You're a stupid son of death, you know? You don't deserve to live, you know? Right? I mean, they might say something else, but you don't deserve to live. You're too dumb to reform, too wicked to reform. And Unfortunately, I see Christians do it a lot too. You see, when we aren't experiencing mercy ourselves, when we aren't relating to God on the basis of mercy ourselves, it is almost impossible to remember Matthew 5, 7, which says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Being merciful, ah, oh, This is a topic that like gets me in trouble when I start preaching on it. Pastor we know mercy, we're gonna you're all gonna become softies, and everybody's just gonna run over us. Okay. I understand what you're saying, but are we gonna do what the Bible says or not? Being merciful is a part of Jesus' kingdom. I didn't make that rule. Jesus did. He said. This is what my kingdom's like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then when you get a few verses down, it's blessed are the merciful. And therefore, being merciful should be a mark of all of his followers because we are aware of just how much mercy we need. And when that is absent, this is why I get concerned. When that is absent, it can often be a sign that someone has pushed the Lord away in justifying their own sin. So I would say tonight, if you have secret sin or you've justified sin, especially sexual sin, listen, you're a danger to more people than just yourself. Because if you are using the excuse of dissatisfaction with your marriage or dissatisfaction with your sexual relationship with your spouse, and that's the reason you're involved in pornography, or you're, that's the reason you lust, lust after other members, uh, other people out there that aren't your spouse, or that's why you flirt with people at work, or that's why you've started getting involved in this, this affair. If those are the excuses you're using, then you are just as selfish and arrogant as David here. And lives will be destroyed in the wake of you taking what you feel you deserve. Please, please, repent before more harm can be done. Now, (laughs) one would think a sentence of death under the king's oath would be a bad enough punishment for this guy, but David's not thinking clearly, so he's not done talking. He said, and by the way, he's got to pay back this lamb four times. Well, that's great. He's dead, David. How is he supposed to do that? Now David's second sentence is biblical. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. In Exodus twenty-two verse one, when God is giving the instructions to the judges of Israel, He says, "If a man steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep." That's interesting. I mean, David knows his Bible. You know, I love what David Guzik said about David. He said, "David's sin and hardness of heart did not diminish his knowledge of the Scriptures." David knew the words of the Bible, but he was distant from the author. And oh, that is so, so dangerous. I had a great uncle; he's with the Lord now, but he had a serious alcohol problem, and uh, he lost everything because of this alcohol problem. You know, lost his marriage, lost his family, lost his. He had a very well-paying career he couldn't hold a job after this, and so he came to live with us for a period of time. And I remember, you know, we didn't have much of a relationship with him because he, unfortunately, was passed out a lot. And so, you know, he'd be sneaking booze here and there, and, you know, and that was the rule my family set, no drinking, but somehow he'd find it. And, of course, when he wasn't working, he'd be passed out. But every once in a while, he'd be sober, and he'd be out and about in the house. And I remember... We're <sighs> I'm an 80s kid. We watched MTV. I don't even know, is that even around anymore? Probably not good if it is. And a certain video came on, and it was not modest at all. And, uh, and he was just making all sorts of racy comments. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the oldest at that time, and I think I was maybe 11, 12. And he's making all these racy comments in front of us. Not even two hours later, he's talking about all the prophecies in Daniel. Man knew the word. He knew the word. He knew, especially prophecy. He knew it. And he would talk about Bible prophecy all the time. He'd talk about the Bible all the time. This is so dangerous. Never mistake biblical knowledge for spirituality. In 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, it tells us, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so if if I got all the knowledge, but I'm not loving the one who, who gave that knowledge or gave that information... I'm completely missing out. If I'm not loving others around me, if I'm not living out the things that God says, Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments, if that's not my life, then that knowledge, all it's going to do is make me proud and carnal. Because it's not the hearer of the word who is blessed, but the person who lives it out. So David, he knows the word. He says, he's going to restore that lamb fourfold. And and. David says here, why? Because he did this thing, but then he adds this. And because he had no pity. Why is he going to lose his life? Oh, no, it's not just because he stole something. He had no pity. The word there, pity, means he felt no compassion. He refused to spare himself, to spare this guy from the pain he would cause by this action. You see, what David recognizes is the real crime occurred long before the rich man took the pet lamb. Because the rich man either didn't stop to think or didn't care about how his actions would affect his neighbor. And that is an awful crime of the heart. You see, the rich man is a son of death because when the idea popped into the rich man's head about taking this pet lamb, he should have thought this is going to break this guy's heart. He should have steeled himself against that thought, thinking this is going to wreck a family. And he did not. Going through with pornography or an affair or flirtation or fill in the blank, it requires a refusal to ponder the pain that it will cause a spouse. I see it all the time when these things happen. There's like a blankness on the person's face where they don't even want to think about it. They don't want to think about the betrayal that the other person will feel and experience. They don't want to think about the idea that that other person is going to be dismissed as unworthy or unimportant, enough to be faithful to. These actions require a refusal to acknowledge the pain that would cause one's children It requires the embracing of the lie that everything will be fine even though I cross over this line. It requires a rejection of the truth of 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 and 4 that my body no longer belongs to me once I get married. The Bible says that. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. Husbands, render due affection unto your wives. Do you not know that your body doesn't belong to you? It belongs to your wife. And then it says the exact opposite for the gals. The gals. Wives, render due affection unto your husbands, for your body doesn't belong to you anymore. I I don't get to take this body and maybe like when I was 16 and go out and flirt with the girls. I don't get to do that now. It doesn't belong to me. I gave it to somebody else. Hmm. Why is David hyperconscious of this reality of the real crime? that it happened before the man did anything he's hyperconscious because it's exactly what he did and so nathan says to him when david's anger rushes out he says to david you are the man you are the one david who felt no compassion for Bathsheba, Uriah, her father, her grandfather, all of your loyal friends. You're the one who showed no pity. You're the one who should have recognized a very clear line that should never be crossed, but walked over it anyway. You are the selfish, arrogant man who abused his power to take from someone who couldn't do anything to stop it. You are the one who deserves to die, David. You Are the son of death. Now, (laughs) these were very bold words from Mr. Nathan the prophet. They are less bold words than Ahimelech the high priest spoke to King Saul, which ended up in him and all of his co workers being murdered by Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 22. But Nathan does it anyway. There are times when we must lovingly but firmly confront someone's sin. Now, you need to understand the other side of this reality. God does not promise they will receive it well when we do so. He doesn't. But we must still have the courage to say it if God sends us, like Nathan, to do so. Now, before we move on, I do want to point out... (laughs) David's behavior is not just something Nathan disagreed with, okay? It's not like he's like, oh, David, I can't believe he did this. You can't tell somebody, you're the man, unless there's some obvious wickedness going on, all right? Too often, people are labeled as irredeemable when God is nowhere near finished working on that person because of something you just disagree with. Make sure when you say you're the man that you're Nathan and not David, Because two people made conclusions here. Now, Nathan, after he says, you are the man, I can only imagine the stunned shock on David's face. It doesn't tell us his reaction at all. Nathan just goes on speaking. It says, and Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I didn't come here for your judgment on this issue, David. I have a message From the Lord for you. Now, when we look at God's message to David here through Nathan the prophet, there are great similarities between this message and Nathan's previous message in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In both messages, before before God says what he's going to do to David, he reminds David of everything he'd already done for him, both times. Here we see that the Lord starts off and he says, Nathan says, as the Lord lives. Uh, I'm sorry, no, Nathan says, um, "'Thus says the Lord God of Israel, "'I anointed you king over Israel, "'and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. "'And I gave you your master's house, "'your master's wives into your bosom. "'I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. "'And if that had been too little, "'I would have moreover have given unto you "'such and such things.'" You know, it's interesting. We learned in 2 Samuel chapter 3 that Saul had one concubine, but now we learn that Saul had amassed a full harem of women when he was king. I don't want to go into that because we already covered Saul's failures ad infinitum. But the point that David is relate, uh, the Lord is relating to David here is, David, I didn't have to do any of this for you. God didn't have to pick David. He didn't owe David a rescue from King Saul. And he didn't have to give David the status of the most successful leader Israel had ever had in the land. All those things were gifts from God. We read about this here when he says, you know, um, I'm the one who anointed you king over Israel. That goes all the way back to the beginning when David was a shepherd boy. And, And Samuel came up and he came to David's father's house. And David brought out the oldest and God said, not him. And they went through all the kids and God said, none of them. And he turned to to Jesse, David's father, and said, do you have any more kids? He goes, yeah, I've got one, but he's the run out with the sheep. Lord says, I didn't pick you because you were the best, and I didn't have to pick you, but I did. I anointed you king over Israel. And then when someone refused to give it up, I delivered you from their hand. And then after you had been crowned king, I gave you everything. I gave you Saul's palace. I gave you his, his, his harem. And, and again, there's no idea that David even used Saul's harem. The idea is of a status thing. God's not for harems. The idea here is it's for the idea that he, he gave him this status. And the Lord says, I would have given you even more, even a greater status if that had been too little. I'd have given you more of such and such things, greater status, greater stuff, if you'd wanted it, if you just asked. I do think it's important to note that God does not claim to have given David all of his multiple wives. God doesn't mention that here because that was David's own doing and downfall. But I do find it to be so fascinating that even though David deserved none of these things, God says, I was willing to give you even more things you didn't deserve. God is far more willing to give than we are to ask. And that's, I think, what really displeased the Lord. David knew God wouldn't give him Bathsheba, but instead of asking for something he could have, he took something that was forbidden. And so the Lord asks him in verse 9, Wherefore, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? In light of the fact that I've been so good to you, David, why did you despise my commandment? The word despise means to think lightly of, not, it's not a very high priority to you. Why, why was my commandment a low priority to you? <laughs> and that's a question I frequently ask myself. Why did you cross that line? Well, after all God's done for you, what were you thinking? Why wasn't what God commanded important enough to stop you? Those questions, they should break our hearts when we've sinned. They should urge us to run to his throne of grace to make things right. David had done none of that. Instead, he had covered up his sin with more sin. And so God says, in addition to this despising of my command to not take your neighbor's wife, in addition to that, you've killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and you slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. I used to wonder why God didn't point out the affair that started it all. Why is he just mentioning the murder and the marriage? But notice that the murder and the subsequent marriage are mentioned as things in addition to despising the Lord. When we get to verse 10, we see the same thing. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The despising that David did was the initial sin. And so God is addressing here two problems with King David. His initial despising of God's command to have the affair, and then number two, his cover-up through the murder of Uriah and his marriage to Bathsheba. It's almost as if God says, why did you treat my commandments against adultery like they were nothing? And then why, oh why, did you do the rest of the stuff after that failure? Why didn't you come to me? There's even a sense in the way this sentence is worded that God is telling David, there would have been some kind of mercy after you despised my command against adultery if you'd confessed it. But by compounding your sin with the cover-up attempt, now your discipline will be even greater. And so in verse 10, the Lord says to him, now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Because of not just the adultery, but mostly because of this cover-up attempt, God pronounces two judgments upon David, two disciplines. The first one, he says, the sword won't depart from your house. You're going to have war for the rest of your days, David. Now, that's the exact opposite of the place God had brought him to when he blew it. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. That was his future. And God says it's not anymore. The sword will never depart from your house. You'll have war for the rest of your days. Because, again, the Lord reiterates the seriousness of what David had done. And now he gets to the heart of it, because you have not just despised my commandments, but by despising my commandments, you have despised me. And when I treat God's commands like they are not important, it's the same as treating God like he's not important. There's a sense where we have devalued him in our heart, because we have thought of him as lesser in our heart, as if he does not see, he does not hear, and he does not know everything. And, he says, not only did you despise me and think I I didn't see any of that stuff, but in addition to that, then you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. When I try to cover up that despising of God, I'm also saying that God's not going to do anything about how I've despised him. You know, I had a Bible college teacher, and he said, when you get to the scary verses, teach them scary because that's what they're meant to be. Don't try to remove the bite from them. In the same way, when you teach the comforting verses, teach them comforting. Don't try to remove the comfort from it. And I'll teach a message on the grace of God, because that's where we're in in the Bible. And inevitably, there's always somebody who comes to me and goes, well, you know, Pastor Will, we can't, you know, we don't want to use God's grace for license for sin. I'm like, yeah, duh. I wasn't there today. <laughs> we'll talk about that when we get to that. Why can't we just talk about the grace of God? You know, you know uh, okay. <laughs> See how I do this politely. There are those who would say that if you were to just teach a message on the goodness of God with no strings attached, that you weren't preaching the full gospel. To which I would reply, what about all those sections of Scripture that just talk about the goodness of God and don't, don't make sure they get in something about repentance or evil or sin or something like that? What about that? Is, are you telling me inspired Scriptures not preaching the gospel? And so, while there are wonderfully comforting passages that we read and they, we need to see them just as they are, Not try to try to you know dumb them down at all so that well we don't we don't want to get all licensee on sin, you know. In the same way, when we see scary verses, they're meant to warn us. There is a reason that lists like 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 exist. There's a reason why. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, refers to homosexuality, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. They're there for a reason, to warn us. Yes, they remind us of what God saved us from, like he says, and such were some of you, but now you're washed. Yes, they are there for that, but they also serve as a warning to anyone who thinks that God will just ignore sin. We know the truth is no one just gets away with sin. Romans 6:23 the wages of sin is death. So David you're going to have wars from now and that's number 1 discipline. And then number 2 verse 11 back in 2 Samuel 12 thus says the Lord behold which means David I'm not done with disciplining you yet so pay attention. Behold I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them unto your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. (sighs) You think it's okay to proposition, seduce, pressure married women into an affair, David? Well then, you will learn how it feels to be on the receiving end of such behavior. And in doing so, God tells David that he will show him just how big he is, that nothing David has amassed to himself can be kept if God goes after it. And God will do it in such a way that David would learn forever the folly of thinking that he was somehow bigger than God, that God would not do something about what he had done. Because the truth is, God doesn't need to skulk around when he uses his authority. And so we will see this actual discipline, he says, of your own house, your own family are going to do to you what you did to your friend Uriah. That discipline, this that that Nathan prophesies here, will happen. It will find its fulfillment when Absalom, David's son, takes the kingdom from David in just a few chapters. And Absalom will sleep with David's wife all of his wives, on the same roof where David first conceived the plan to cross the boundaries that God had set in his law. The same roof where he looked out and lusted after Bathsheba, that's where Absalom will sleep with all the wives that David has amassed to show, I'm king now. I'm the one in charge. You know, it's always an interesting thing when you read that situation. David's fleeing from his son. And there's this guy up on the hill. He's a descendant, a family member of King Saul. And he's throwing rocks at David while David's trying to run away. And he's screaming at him. He's just going, you deserve every bit of this, you rat. You took the kingdom from my, my kinsmen. You know, everything that's happened to you, you deserve. And, you know, remember, David's got his, you know, cousins or nephews, you know, Joab and Abishai, uh, you know, they're, they're hanging around. And, and uh, these are not exactly like, you know, um, you know, hey, you want us to tell him to ask him to stop? You know, they're not, they're, they're not those kind of guys, okay? You know, and so, so, so Abishai, you know, turns to David and he goes, you want me to remove that guy's head from his shoulders? That's how they would shut someone up, you know? I'll take his head off and then he can't talk. <laughs> It was the first form of cancel culture. Which we're probably not far from either. But David says some of the most interesting words of all of Scripture. He says, maybe the Lord sent him to curse me. Maybe the Lord sent him to throw stones at me. Maybe the Lord will see now what I'm going through, and he'll have mercy upon me. And I think what David's probably thinking in this moment is he's going, I deserve this. I deserve this. I did this, what has been done to me, I did it. So maybe if I don't try to retaliate, maybe if I accept this, maybe God will have mercy on me if I acknowledge that what's happening now is probably the most fair thing that's ever happened to me in my life, maybe then God will have mercy and not give me what I deserve. We'll get into that later. But these are some of the things that make David a man after God's heart. You know, the worst thing you can do isn't blowing it like David blew it. The worst thing you can do is to somehow try to justify it or think you deserve better. It says he who hardens his heart will be, I'm paraphrasing, will be swiftly cut down and that without remedy. But whosoever humbles himself will find mercy. God resists the proud, right? But he gives grace to the humble. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I am often asked why Nathan even has a message for David, why this is David's discipline, why David didn't get the death penalty, because unlike the fictional story with the man who took the the lamb, you know, the rich man who took the lamb from the poor man, David did commit a capital crime, Not, not even just one. He committed two capital crimes, adultery and murder. I don't know the full answer of why God didn't give David the death penalty immediately. I do know that the discipline David experiences, based on what Nathan tells him here, that they were both quite painful. Perhaps, maybe even more painful than just being executed on the spot. But I do think we also need to recognize that the Lord knew exactly how miserable David had been all this time. And He also knew how David would would respond once David was exposed. And so... When I think of David and God sparing him, it reminds me of another Israeli who committed capital crimes but was not executed when confronted by the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it tells us that Paul went out with letters you know, to capture Christians, to arrest them, and it mentions that he was breathing out murders and threats. I've been angry before. I've wanted to hit somebody quite a few times. I don't know if I've ever been breathing out murder. I don't know if that was my inhalation and exhalation, was murder ever. In 1 Timothy chapter 113, we read it in our scripture reading, Paul explains that one of his sins was that he was a blasphemer. That's another crime punishable by death. Murder blasphemy, both capital crimes for an Israeli. And yet, all the while Paul was doing that, Jesus tells us in Acts 9-4 that he felt just like David did. When he met Jesus on the road, Jesus didn't kill him. He asked him a question. He didn't actually ask him a question. He made a statement. He, goes, he says, why do you persecute me? That's the question. But then he makes a statement, and he goes, it's been hard for you to kick against the goats. You've been pretty miserable, man. Why are you still fighting this? And so in first Timothy chapter one, verses fifteen and sixteen, I'm gonna close with this. David says this. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptance. We should all accept this. And what is it? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You can't claim that title. It's under inspiration that somebody else already did. How be it? For this cause I obtained mercy. Why did God show Paul mercy? He says that in me first. Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering, how patient He is, for a pattern, that I might be a pattern for them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting, that everyone would know that God could forgive them too. And if God can forgive men who deserve to die like David and Paul, then God can forgive you and me no matter what we've done. So, perhaps tonight or maybe even over the last few Sunday nights, the Lord has been confronting you with something. My challenge to you is please don't keep that in the dark anymore. Bring it into the light. Confess your sin and find that God is far more merciful than you could ever comprehend. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we gathered here tonight may not have all done what David or even Paul did, but Lord, by the very admission of needing a Savior, we admit that we've done something that is worthy of death, for the wages of sin is death. And so, Lord, we don't want to be those who justify our sin, who hide, who cover up, who keep you at a distance because we don't want to deal with our sin. Lord, we don't want to get to a place where you've got to send somebody to confront us or you know, call, expose our sin and bring it into the light. Lord, you, you call out to us and offer mercy. You say, come, come into the light. You give us a beautiful promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, for anyone tonight who's just saying, Lord, I'm I'm coming clean. Lord, will you forgive them? Will you let them know they're forgiven? Lord, let there not leave a, a single person here tonight with anything hidden from you. Lord, in your love and your compassion and your grace, will you reach down, break bones where necessary. Lord, that we might come running to your throne of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.